Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Pat's Pints podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about really one of the crown jewels of the beer world, and, and that would be Lambics. And I'm joined by, as always, my partner in crime, Mark Richards. Yes, yes. Going to talk about those wild things over in Belgium. I'm excited about it, Pat. I'm looking forward to it. And Mark and I today are joined by our special guest, uh, Dan Reeve, who I know is a, a lover of Lambics and has got a lot to add to this conversation, I'm sure. Hey, guys. Welcome, thanks Dan. for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here and pop a couple of these beers that I've been sitting on my shelf for a few years. So thanks for having me. Hey, happy to have you. Well, I guess we might as well kind of jump into it and kind of go to the first question on people's minds, which would be, what exactly is a Lambic? I don't know, Dan, do you want to take a little swing at what makes a Lambic beer different from other beers? Oh, that's a tough one. But I guess if you want to get really technical, Lambic is a soured beer that is brewed in Belgium. And if you want to get even more technical, it's brewed only in one area in Belgium, down by what is then River? What's the river name? The, the River Seine, yeah. yeah. Seine, yeah, uh, that's what I thought. Which and, is, in uh, fact... Not not that impressive of a river, really, when you get to it. I, I I don't think I've ever actually seen it. I don't know. Maybe I have. It didn't leave any impression, like you just said. <laughs> well, I think when you're in Brussels, it actually most of it is diverted underneath the city, so it would probably be hard to see actually in the city. I'm not saying you can't, but I, I certainly didn't. And uh, the lambic style has been around forever because it's it's natural science happening that's making this beer. As opposed to modern beer, which is, you know, also science, but very well controlled. Yeah. One of the things I would say is that, you know, if you go back, say, two, three hundred years, all the beers were wild fermented, right? I mean, Indeed. the brewers didn't have a, a great idea of yeast. And so, you know, you could say when you drink a lambic, it's probably the most extant, you know, surviving style that is a link back in time to the way that probably all beers used to be. So I, I think that's one of the things that's really sort of romantic and, and quite interesting about the Lambics. I think it's good for listeners and to know this. What would you say the difference is between like a modern day sour beer that you can get, most of your local brewers make them now, and a Lambic? One thing that's different about a Lambic than most sour beers is the spontaneous fermentation. And, and maybe we should describe what we mean by that. So it means that the brewers don't intentionally add whatever yeast or bacteria is going to ferment the beer. So a lot of sour beers that are made, most sour beers that are made in this country, and not only in this country, but also in Europe and elsewhere, you know, they're sour because there's bacteria, but that bacteria or the wild yeast like Britannomyces is intentionally added by the brewer, whereas in Alambic, they pump the wort up into the cool ship. And, you know, the romance is that everything that's going to ferment it kind of just wafts in on the night air. It also could be living in the building. I mean, at one time, breweries of the region, especially towards Brussels, which is now highly populated, historically, there were orchards there that carried a lot of this yeast. You know, some of it can be coming from inside of the uh, wood that it's aged in. I think there's a story on Lindemann's when they did a rebuild and upgraded their brewery. They actually cut out this one wood wall and moved it into the spontaneous fermentation area in hopes that while it was in the cool ship, 
that would contribute to some of those bugs that they needed to uh, carry on their tradition. Belgian yeast, uh, if you ferment any wort with it, it's going to have some Belgian characteristics from the yeast primarily. So, you know, you've got spontaneous fermentation. Uh, you've got where you're picking a particular strain of bacteria and fermenting with that in a more controlled way. And then I would say, Dan, probably most of the breweries in our area, you know, there are some that are doing some uh, long extended Brettomyces fermentations. And then there's a lot that are just doing kettle sour pre-boil, which is an entirely different process to achieve those acid levels. Yeah, that's good information for everybody to know that the difference between just a standard sour beer and a Lambic is a pretty big difference, which is why Lambic is kind of special in that way. That's right, because even with the, the wilder strains, most of the time they're intentional, and although controlled is probably used in a very loose <laughs> meaning there, but at the same time, you know, there's an intentional strain that's been chosen for certain characteristics in hopes that that comes out, albeit it takes a little bit more time. Great. I might throw out just a couple more characteristics that are specific to Lambics. One of them is that there has to be a certain percentage of wheat in the grain bill. I mean, it's usually around a third, I think 30, 40% of wheat. They used aged hops at least one year old and oftentimes up to three years old, which, you know, for all the hop heads out there, you'll say that that's exactly the opposite of what you normally want to do with hops, but they let them age until they're kind of yellow and cheesy. And uh, then there's, you know, the aging of the beer in some kind of wooden barrel or cask and, and typically for, for years. You know, as you're talking about wheat, also might want to note that we're talking unmalted wheat here. That's correct. Generally not malted wheat. But this is kind of an interesting thing. And I think I read this in, was it Tasting Beer, the Randy Mosher book? Um, oh, yeah. Great book. Yeah. I, I was trying to do a little research to see if I could get some specifics on year of origin. But he actually, in that book, says that the unmalted grains came from some really unique tax laws that existed at one point in time in Belgium where they were charged by the size of their mash tun. And he says in there, and I hadn't really heard this other than this source, if you had a second vessel that you did an extended mash on uh, the unmalted grains, that the tax bill was like half of the first vessel. Have you heard that? Yes, I have heard that the tax laws largely did influenced the way that the Belgians made beer, and it was based on the size of the mash tun. Um, I don't know all the specifics about second runnings and things like that, but it would make sense that that totally influences beer. I mean, I think that is what leads to this turbid mash that they use traditionally when making lambics, and right. maybe when later on in the in the show we'll come back to what that means, but just a specific way of extracting the sugars out of the grains. Yeah, indeed, and I think that unmalted wheat addition definitely lends to a lot of proteins. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've heard a little bit about the wort production, and the whole idea of what you want is you want a wort that's not got too much nutrients in it, because you don't want to make it too easy for just any bug that floats into the wort to fermented. And then you want to leave behind some dextrins that 
at a fermentation stage, like when the brett kicks in, which might be six months or, or a year, you want to have some sugars left behind that the normal uh, yeast hasn't chewed up and fermented already. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually heard the same thing about the wort being very, very specific when it comes to making lambic because they want to be able to control that like you said, so not every bacteria can actually get into it because they do want consistency in the end product, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is no easy thing when you're doing spontaneous fermentation. Now, when you're talking about consistency, however, there's a part that you haven't touched on, Pat, which is the blending. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think maybe before we get into the blending, maybe, maybe we should open a beer and get to that part of the the best part of the podcast, right? Man, I'll tell you, Pat, I was getting a little edgy over here. <laughs> well, maybe everyone should describe, you know, what they have. And uh, Dan, since you're the guest, I'll let you go first. Oh, what an honor. Thank you. I have a Cantillon Goose, just the 100% Lambic blended Goose in this bottle. Let me look at the cork here. It's from 2016, and it's in the small format bottle. Excellent. Okay. Mark, what about you? Uh, So today I will be having for our first round, and this is pretty widely available here depending on the bottle shop you hit. I got it over at Pace High, Lindemann's Cuvée Rene, and that is an Ogu's Lambic Ale. And this is also a 2016. There's a uh, code on the side that you can crack with the appropriate website information on the month and year. All right, and I am going to be drinking uh, also an Ode Guise, and this is from Three Fontenen. This is uh, another of the uh, Brussels breweries and blenderies, and this one is bottled January 16th, 2017, so just a little younger than the ones you're drinking. Okay. Cheers. Well, I'm happy to report that the cork didn't crack on me. Yeah, I got a really nice a really nice pop off of mine when I opened it. The the three Fontenaine are a little easier to open than the Cantillons. Yeah. I've had a few Cantillons over the years that the corks basically just fell into pieces and then you end up having to try not to drink it. Yeah, it's be- it's better without the cork in the beer. <laughs> now is anybody getting very fancy and using a lambic basket? Ah, I am. I don't have a lambic basket here in front of me. Maybe you could describe that for the listeners at home. Yeah, please do. Sure, sure. So the traditional way that lambic is served is in a kind of a wicker basket that I would say is about the size of maybe a shoebox. Would you guys agree with that? That sounds right. Yeah, I mean a little skinnier than a shoebox, but about the same length as a shoebox. And they uh, they put the beer on its side in the basket, and it is served that way, designed to keep the sediment at the bottom of the bottle. And I've been to a few places that uses them and sells them, and I've thought about buying one multiple times, but then I thought, I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Plus, it takes well, it up a lot be, of space in the suitcase. Well, and now you, when you've been to Belgium, and you brought back quite a bit of beer from there, it's hard to decide what you bring back when you go to Belgium, isn't it? What would you yes. say is the the most you've been able to get back uh, in your suitcase? Ooh, I took an empty suitcase the last time I went, and I believe I got somewhere around 12 bottles. Okay. 
maybe a few more. It was very heavy. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I can imagine. These are the larger <laughs> format bottles or the small ones? Yes, these are the larger the, format bottles. The, the 750 milliliter mm -hmm. type. Yeah. For my brother, he really likes this stuff also. So we had a whole bunch shipped from that Belgium in a box company. They operate out of the Three Fontaine or Fontaine. Sorry, I have always have a hard time pronouncing this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's they, tricky. I I brushed up on it, but go ahead. And they always say it's. Some people say dry. Some people say dry. Do you know the correct way? Uh, I think. Well, okay, so. I think it's dry fontanen. And but we should just tell everybody that just means three fountains. Yeah, don't misconstrue that and think it means dry fountain because uh, <laughs> it, it would seem very odd that beer would flow from a dry fountain. They should use that in their marketing. Yeah. But Belgium in a box that company that ships this stuff actually operates out of that same facility. Mm. So they will ship as much, obviously, as you pay for of drive, they will also ship other brewery stuff as long as the ratio is larger in the drive than it is in anything else. Okay. What do they charge for your shipping? Do you know? I mean, it, it obviously depends on how big your box is. Yeah, I want to sure, say, sure. I want to say it was like a hundred dollars for. Okay. Like probably around ten or twelve bottles. No, I mean, no, I, that's not bad. It's been a few years, so if I'm completely wrong, somebody fact check me. But I think it was around that. Okay, I'll tell you, it's it's much more economical to uh, fit a few bottles in your suitcase <laughs> when you're over there because, man, it's prices we pay for some of these beers in the U.S. Of course, they've got to come a long way, but you're shocked when you go to the bottle shop in Belgium and you're like, man. Are these beers totally free? Is Cantillon free? It's like, should I only be paying like three euro for this bottle? It seems insane. Yeah, that is true. Difference. And not to say, yeah, good luck finding some Cantillon in the U.S. Yeah. I got I, I one mean, bottle I, in the U.S. I want to say it was either last year or the year before because my brother-in-law at the time was working as a beer manager at Wyland's. They got a case or something like that, and he got one for me. Oh, that's cool. Nice. That's really nice. Yeah. He no longer works there, You have connections. Yeah. 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 Great store. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's in our glass now. The first thing I might add is, you know, despite the fact of this turbid mash and all the wheat, I mean, mine is crystal clear golden, mm -hmm. and this is from Three Fontenen. You know, there was a big pop when the cork came off, and it poured with quite a bit of effervescence. But that, you know, uh, the head kind of dissipates pretty quickly, like it would on any sour beer. How would you guys describe the uh, nose yep. on this beer? Uh, the um, one you're drinking or the one we're drinking? Well, the one. <laughs> Should we Let's go just round to the one table? you're drinking? Mine, and I'm drinking the Eau de Goose Cuvée Rene, and that is from Lindemann's, uh, very... I don't want to say deep gold, but definitely not straw, but it's uh, it's a pretty weighty gold color. The head was uh, fairly fluffy when first poured, but it's dissipated pretty rapidly. When the cork came out, pretty funky at first, but it is just after breathing a few minutes, it's calmed down a lot. Yeah, I would say mine, Cantillon Goose, is, and color-wise sounds very similar to yours. It is even from... When I say 2016, there is a lot of carbonation left in this beer, which is nice. 
because carved in the bottle, of course. The aroma is powerful sour, of course. I've I've had this beer a bunch of times, so I, I know what it's supposed to taste like, and this is what it's supposed to taste like, or smell like, I should say, sorry. Smell like, and it's it's kind of oaky with almost like an almond kind of smell to it. And what about the bread? I mean, I I definitely get a funkiness on the nose. Like Mark said, it's not quite as strong now as when it first came out, but there's that there's that almost citrusy fruitiness, but a lot of funkiness too. And it's always hard to describe bread, I think. There's not a ton of that funk, and I sort of interchange like sour and funk. That's just just when I'm describing things. But there's not a ton of it. It's pretty clean. Would you say uh, you've had all these beers before, Dan? What would you say would be in general? Is there much difference between these three breweries and the three beers we're having from your memory? Uh, between the Cantillon and the Dree or Dry. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference when it comes to these. Now, the Lindermans, it's been a long time since I've had it, but I remember that one being pretty intense. Like maybe not as, I mean, they're all intense as far as sour levels, but the these, that one seemed a little bit sharper, if I remember. Yeah, it's not super sharp. I mean, it's oh, okay. kind of pleasant. I'd almost put it on a raw level of that kind of sweet tart. Uh, almost reminds you of the aroma of sweet tart. I'll say mm. when I opened it though, it was pretty farmy. Like it had that, you know, the barnyard and, and probably a little bit of, uh, maybe light struck hop, you know, mixed with barnyard, but it, it really, that, that aroma went away just within a couple minutes of it being in a Belgian glass. Yeah. I think that's a highly underrated beer. That is, that is a good beer and it's so easy to find. Yeah, it is. It's pretty easy to find. It's also, uh, I don't find it to be that underrated, though. If you if you look at people that are actually rating it, most places are giving it high marks. Beer advocates, I think, like a 92 or something, maybe. Maybe I shouldn't have said underrated. Maybe I should have said overlooked. That's the best hmm. way to say it. Sometimes those things that are right in front of you, you don't treasure as much because you don't have to uh, go to the Cantillon Brewery to pick them up. Correct. If you remember, Mark, how much did it cost? I forget exactly, but it was in a six, seven dollar range, and uh, it's not a seven fifty. It's like the shorter one. I think on the Lindemans as a brand, the uh, fruit varieties could maybe put something in your mind to make you think not to pick this up because they are in my opinion, just so sickening sweet. It's kind of a turnoff to me personally. I mean, everybody's tastes are different. Frambois, if you're having dessert, it's a dessert beer. But if you're just drinking beer, that maybe that's why some people just overlook the Lindemans and think of the more fruit, you know, they've got the Pesh, they got the, uh, obviously the Creek, Frambois, that, that strawberry mix one is especially a turnoff. To me, I don't know how yeah. you guys feel about the Lindemans fruit lambics, but but this, I think, uh, yeah, I would pick this up anytime. I think you hit the nail on the head when you say that because of those fruited lambics, which are pretty widely available and, and are not totally made in the traditional way. I mean, if they're sweetened and pasteurized that people do overlook Lindemans. But I will say, because the 
the the Dree or the Dry Fontenaine. Same, it's a three hundred and seventy five milliliter bottle. I think it's the same size bottle, and it costs about twice as much. You know, so you're getting a pretty good value for your money if you're going for that Lindemans. With that, with those, and I totally concur that they're very very sweet. I have heard that they use maybe syrups instead of whole fruit to sweeten and flavor their lambics, so that could add to that. I do want to say one more thing about the the flavor profile of this a little bit, though. It's definitely sour, but it's not aggressively sour. I mean, the first time I had a Lambic, I was, after having uh, a variety of American sour beers, especially in the early days of American sour beers, I was a little bit surprised at how soft the acidity is in some ways. Not to say it's not sour, but it's almost like with a, with a Cantillon, there's, you know, some strange parallels of, of saying it's like a really funky kind of sour lemonade. I mean, it's got Ooh. a lot of that that fruit character, and and it has the tartness. Like if you didn't add much sugar, if you were uh, to your lemonade, it wouldn't wouldn't be that far. I mean, okay, maybe tell me if you think that's bullshit. No, I mean, I can see what you're going with. It. I don't know. I guess in the today's era of sour beers, maybe they're not as in your face like you're saying. But I still get a pretty good kick of sour off of this one. Yeah, yeah. I say it's a tart, very drinkable beer. is very, it's a crusher, as we say, Pat. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. It would be a good beer for a hot day. I think, I mean, and I've I've heard people like uh, or read people like uh, Jean Van Roy of uh, Cantillon say, you know, really what we're trying to do is to try and make it not too sour. I mean, it's actually challenging to get all that complexity without the acidity going over the top. Um, but I think, I mean, they do, they do a great job. Speaking of Cantillon, actually, uh, in front of me now in my hands and, and you guys can't see because we're doing a remote recording. Uh, I have the English pamphlet, the little blue pamphlet that, <laughs> that, uh, that they hand you when you're getting ready to take the English tour at Cantillon. I was there in 2015. What, what year were you there, Dan? I was there in, 2016, and then I've been twice. The other time I want to say was 2014 or somewhere right around there. Okay, great. And then, Pat, you were there while you were abroad just a couple of years ago? Yeah, I think it was 20, April of 2018, so 2018? two years ago when mm-hmm. I uh, – mm-hmm. They've since expanded quite a bit, I believe. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's what I've been told, that there is now an upstairs kind of drinking bar area. Yeah, now, any tips for people who might be going to uh, Brussels and want to visit Cantillon? Well, I mean, one of the things I remember from going there is that they only do, like, pr- you can go do a self-tour almost all through the week, but there's only certain times, I think maybe just Friday and Saturday, when they do, like, the guided tours. Yeah, there was, I think there was a way to sign up online for that, too. Yes. Um, and that was something that was just lucky that maybe somebody told me. Fortunately, I got in and I was consider myself blessed because we were only in Brussels for two days. I always tell people, first, you have to go. It's like a beer destination, right? You have to go and check it out because it's so old school and the beer they make is so unique. So you have to go. You have to go. Second thing. Yeah. The second thing I always tell people is it is not in the nicest neighborhood. So if you're wandering around, make sure... It's early in the day. I wouldn't go walking about too much in the dark around there. 
Yeah, you are kind of questioning, like, is this a good neighborhood? Is this not a good neighborhood? I don't know that it is or it isn't, but it doesn't look like the tourist area at all. That's a very good way to put it. It's a little rough around the edges as far as compared to the rest of Brussels. Yeah, I think that's accurate. The uh, tours, I think, start at something like 10 in the morning. So that uh, you're not at least you're at least you're going there in the daylight if you're going to do one of the guided tours. Yeah, that's last time we were there. We we got there early afternoon. And then, of course, we had to try everything they had. So we were there quite a while and then ended up just <laughs> taking an Uber back to the hotel. Yeah. Well, it's the only place in the world you can go do that. So I think I think right. that was time well spent. I don't know um, if you guys yeah. had this experience when you were there that everybody seemed to share. They're like everybody at other tables, which were mostly other Americans, or basically like, you know, halfway through their bottle or tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, do you want to try this one? I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's definitely a very international group you're touring with. The only thing that you're probably likely not to have is anyone from Belgium. Right. But uh <laughs> it was the older gentleman with long white hair, the bartender when you were there? I, I don't remember that detail. It, yeah. it doesn't strike me that that was right, but uh, I don't know. He's somewhat of a legend because he's, I wouldn't say he's not friendly, but he kind of takes no BS, if you will, And because I think he's had to put up with us beer nerds like drooling over this stuff. So he's very much a, what do you want, get in and get out of my line type person. Well, if you, you know, if you worked there, I could, I could see where you would develop that. I mean, this might be an interesting time just to say that it used to be this was just like the beer of Brussels. So I was looking in the records. Another good source of information on this is uh, the Beer Bible by Jeff Allworth or Michael Jackson's Great Beers of Belgium. They both have a lot of good information. But one of the facts I saw is that in 1910, the Lambic breweries produced 850,000 U.S. barrels of beer, whereas today the largest of the Lambic breweries, which I what I read was was bone maybe produces something like eight thousand barrels a year. So wow, uh, you know that's a hundred times decrease. Well, okay, bone's not the only brewery, but anyway, the point is that you know the amount of lambic being made. It used to be that just that just like going down and ordering, you know, a PBR, I suppose, or something like that. But now it's become something very different. Yeah, eight thousand barrels is not a lot of barrels. So for a year's production. No, no, like that, that's not, that's, that's, I mean, that's uh that wouldn't even be, I, that wouldn't even be in the top five of Columbus breweries. Probably. That's right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's interesting. So we'll also say though, about the walk there, if you were a tourist and you were in Brussels and you're probably going to be staying in that downtown townie area, that is the most picturesque in the old buildings. There is a pub just outside that's really not, I don't know, maybe a five, minute walk from uh, the Grand Square uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the uh, Motor Lambic fantastic collection and great kind of you know gastropub feel and yeah. you're really just a 15 minute walk from that it's not a long walk so I think even though we're kind of saying it looks sketchy I think it's just it just looks like not what you may be used to looking at don't be afraid to walk there I think is what I'm saying yeah um, I believe that pub might be partly owned by Cantillon. Oh, really? Now, mm -hmm. did you go there, Dan? Have you been to that pub? Yes, I have. There's actually two of them. Oh, okay. And I've only been to one of them. 
and it has kind of a big outdoor patio in front of it. Yep, that's the same one. That's the same one, and that's the one that's pretty much en route if you're coming from uh, the center of town out. Yeah, and I don't know. It'd be interesting to look this up. I don't know how many different pubs in Brussels actually serve Lambic because it is not that easy to find Mm. on draft. Yeah, yeah. They had a decent bottle selection there too, although they did have draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you're in Brussels, it just seems like the beers are just so inexpensive. A little bit of that, I think, might go back to the tax structure. Because I know taxes on beer in some European countries is quite a bit lower than it is here in the U.S. I mean, there's other reasons, of course, too, because it doesn't have to be shipped and all kinds of things like that. But but you're right. I mean, some of these things you find, you're like, oh, wow, I cannot believe that that's the price I'm paying you know, for this. <laughs> well, Pat, I know you pretty well, and you probably know me equally as well. When you pay the same price for one as you would six over there, what do you do? (laughs) You have six. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard not to. Yeah, it is. The other thing about Belgian bars that I find really interesting is like no matter what beer you order, they have a glass specific to that beer. Isn't that fantastic too? Yeah. Those bars must have so much glassware. (laughs) Yeah. You see some on display, but where do they keep them all? And some of them come with like a wooden structure to hold the glass. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> like, like quack. Uh, quack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I might say is like a culture that has that quirkiness and appreciation of glassware is the, exactly the kind of culture where this idea of making beer the way it was made 500 years ago could survive. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't fit into the uh, German model of efficiency, I will say. <laughs> and, yeah. and neither does making it lambic. I mean, it's a, it's a really hard way to make a beer. You know, while we're on the topic of visiting Belgium, uh, I will say that when I went, and it was I was coached by Dan. You gave me some, some great advice. But after leaving uh, Cantillon, what I did is I walked to the train station. I got on the train, and I... I went south to visit uh, Trai or Tri Fontanan. I, you know, it's not quite uh, the same. People don't talk about that in quite the same vein as Cantillon, but uh, it was every bit, it was just perfect. It was a beautiful day. Actually, that walk from the train station to the tap room there, the, the drive tap room, is when I walked over the, uh, the Zen River. Um, ah, yes, so did I. Well, I live on, you know, uh, one of the ravines here in Clintonville, and it's a little bit bigger than the river that goes through the, my ravine, but not that much bigger, I would say. And you're calling that, Overbrook Ravine as having a river. But well, <laughs> here in the U.S., prob- we call that a creek. A creek. Mm. Probably the Seine River has water in it all the time to a larger extent than uh, Overbrook Ravine has, <laughs> but still. Uh, that, but, you know, uh, the Dry Fontenelle is just a fantastic place to visit as well. Yeah, and it's it's just four train stops away. It's a total different feel because it's kind of like in a suburb that feels kind of like a small town, and that tap room is actually relatively new. That's what I understand, yeah. I mean, it hasn't Dreyfontaine only been open in its current existence, like since uh, 90, 94, am I right on that? That sounds right. I was going to say a little story. The first time I went, we went to go find it, and... There is a kind of a nondescript building 
that was the brewery. And then next to it was a restaurant with their logo and everything on it. So we said, okay, well, we'll just go in here. It felt very stuffy and very almost like it actually had white tablecloths. And we're like, this doesn't feel like a brewery. But they were serving their beer and we sat there and watched some lady kill a whole bucket of mussels. And But then the second time I went back, it's the place that you went to, Pat, which definitely doesn't feel like a stuffy area or anything like that. Huh. No, no. I went on, I don't know, it was a Friday and I kind of showed up probably at around after the Canteon tour, maybe around 1 p.m. And for a while there were maybe a couple tables and me. And then at, at one point I was the only person there, mm-hmm. you know, and I was drinking these bottles that come out in this, you know, this elegant basket. And I had a, a cheese tray and it was just one of those moments where I don't know. It just seems like everything is perfect. I mean, I, I can still completely picture that moment in my mind being there in the afternoon, probably a little bit buzzed after visiting Cantillon. And, and it was April and it had been cold, but the sun was kind of streaming through the windows. Ah, beautiful. It sounds like a terrible memory. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, have, there's only, you only get so many of those in your life. I have one other good story from the, the new place. When I went, I actually took a bunch of Jackie O's big stouts with me because okay. my my brother had been communicating with the bartender at that place and the, saying that I was going to go over there and could I bring him anything from the U.S. And they said, well, we don't have big stouts in Belgium, so could you bring me some big stouts? Mm. So I rolled up, you know, like a king with all these beers to drop <laughs> off for him and the bartender wasn't actually working. The guy that my brother had been communicating with, but his girlfriend is also the bartender and she was working. So she understood what was going on and she said thank you and took everything. And after that, it was like, we didn't have to pay for anything. No, that's great. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Cause, and also the menu there, they've got like, you know, do you want the 2016? Do you want the 2014? Mm-hmm. you want the 2008? I mean, yeah. Got she brought us out a bottle from, of course, this sounds like every romantic story. She brought out this bottle from the back that didn't have labels or anything on it. And she said it was a lambic that would been made with honey. And this thing was delicious. Wow. Great. And like wow. I said, there's so much romance around that story. It had to taste good, right? right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but that's all part of the experience, you know? Yeah. Uh, good Boy, stories. Those are good stories. Mussels, uh, definitely the thing to have in Brussels, too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just sticks out in the in my memory of that story because this lady was going to town on this bucket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm guilty of the same. Yeah. Dan, it's been great sure. having you on. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you and share not only a little bit of knowledge, but definitely the passion behind enjoying these Lambic beers. Thanks for coming on, Dan. We'll uh, look forward to having you back at some point in the future to talk about uh, some of the fruited Lambics. So see you shortly. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, man. Yep. Yeah.